0: The scripture reading from this evening comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For he said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of nard. Very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: So, here we come to the last major section in Mark's gospel, and it's a uh, pretty significant turning point in his gospel, and it's a, a turning point where things now seriously turn for the worst for Jesus. Last several weeks, we have been in chapters 11, 12, and 13, and we've noticed that Jesus in the temple has been embroiled in conflict and debates with the religious leaders. And eventually they got to a point where they did not want to ask him any more questions. But now, this chapter opens up with a very ominous tone where we read in verses 1 and 2 that the chief priests and the scribes, they're seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. And even when we look down to the end of the passage in verse 10 and 11, we see the primary means by which this strategy is going to take place. It'll come by way of Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, who goes and meets with the chief priests and says, I will hand him over. I will betray him to you. And interestingly... Right in between these two little paragraphs is this story about this woman who is not named in the story. Uh, scholars try to determine who this, this woman may be, but Mark simply doesn't tell us. And it, her reaction to Jesus could not be more different than the reaction of the chief priests or even the reaction of Judas or as we have seen throughout Mark's gospel, the reaction of the disciples. Here we see that this woman, as we've seen in, with the widow at the end of chapter 12, and we've actually seen a couple other instances where women in the, the Mark of, Mark's gospel are held up as models of faith. And it's a remarkable display of how the kingdom of God, the message that Jesus brought and brings to us, turns everything upside down. All of the values and priorities of his day and time, he turns upside down. Precisely because throughout the story, the people that you see getting it, if you will, are the people who you would least expect. In other words, you would expect the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders to understand since they're supposedly the ones who know the most about the Bible and who God is. Or even Jesus' disciples who were with him day and night for three years. But none of them seem to get it. And instead, the people who seem to be the lowest and the least, the least regarded, the penny drops. And they respond to Jesus' with astounding faith in a way that I think any of us would love to experience if you haven't experienced that. And so, as we enter into this next big section, I I struggled all week trying to figure out how I could insert this comment. So I'm just going to tell you it by way of introduction. It's this whole section in, in Mark, almost the whole chapter, is about the betrayal of Jesus. And it's about the betrayal of Jesus by those who are closest to him. Have you ever been betrayed? Have you ever been in a relationship with someone where they absolutely took your legs out from under you? where you were in a situation where you were supposed to be able to trust that person, you would share your deepest secrets with them, who you really are with that person, only to have them undermine everything about that and betray you. If you've had that experience, I would just tell you, spend time reading this story over the next several weeks, and ask God to help you to see how you can find refuge, you can find refreshment, you can even find help by meditating on the betrayal of Jesus. He knows what it means to be betrayed. He understands that experience. And he went through it for sinners just like you and me. So that when you look at him on the cross, you would know the God who keeps your heart beating, he will never, ever betray you. He will never leave you or forsake you, no matter what anybody does to you, this side of heaven. That's just a, I just had to figure out how to get that. I wanted to get that in there, so there we go. What I want to look at with you from this passage that begins and walks us into the betrayal of Jesus I want to look with you at the idea of faith through the story about this woman. One of the remarkable features of this story is when we see in verse 9, Jesus says, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. That statement should make us pause for a moment and ask the question, well, what? What's the big deal? What did she do? What was so impressive to Jesus? And here, what Jesus sees in this woman is a faith that delights in him above all else because of what he came to do by dying on the cross for sinners. So what I want to do is try to look with you at three things, I think, that this passage through the story of this woman and, and her gift to Jesus teaches us about gospel-centered faith. I want to look with you at the definition of faith, the significance of faith, and then we'll, we'll finish on the eyes of faith. So first, let's, let's think about for a moment, how does this woman help us understand what faith really is, what it looks like in a person's life? Not just in a theology book or a textbook, but in a real person's life. You'll notice here in verse 3 that Mark sets the scene for us, that he's already told us in verse 1 that it's a couple days before Passover, and we'll see this again as we work through the next uh, couple chapters, but you, I should tell you at the, at the outset not to run by that comment of the Passover, because if you know anything about the Old Testament, the Passover, you could look in Exodus chapter 12, it is the Event of the Old Testament that shows God's salvation for His people. If you want to know what redemption is in the Old Testament, the Passover is where you go. And what's most striking about even that comment about the Passover, think about this for a moment. We've been studying and learning that Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh. And he's on the way to the cross. Well, what happened in the Passover? How did God's people, how were they delivered? They were delivered by the death of the firstborn of every household in Egypt. Every household that did not have the blood spattered on their doorframe. And here Mark tells us it's only a couple days before that great feast. And I do not think it's any coincidence at all that this is entirely intentional, that this is precisely when the firstborn, the only Son of God, is on the way to the cross to die. As the pinnacle of God's redemption, of his saving work, So Mark is setting a context for us, and here is this meal that we begin to see about in in verse 3, these couple days before this great feast, remembering God's salvation, and it's in this house uh, of Simon the leper. We don't really know who Simon the leper was. Presumably, this is a man that Jesus had encountered and probably healed of leprosy at one point, but they're in his house, they're reclining at table, eating, and all of a sudden, This woman comes in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke it and she poured it over his head. Mark gives us very little details here, but you kind of have to wonder, wow, that would have been quite an interruption. I can only imagine what that would have been like uh, if someone like one of my boys walks in while I'm having dinner and dumps liquid on my head, that would have... Completely, it would just interrupt everything. And here's this woman who walks in and she gives us this beautiful picture of what faith looks like in action. This flask of ointment that she brings in, Mark tells us, is very costly. And even later on, in the words of uh, those sitting here at the table, most likely uh, all of Jesus' disciples, as well as perhaps some others. They value this at 300 denarii, which is, that's a year's salary in that day and time. In other words, what this flask was, it was not something you just went out to the store and bought. It was probably a family heirloom that got passed down from generation to generation to generation. And these flasks were made in such a way that you you could not use them unless you actually broke them, which meant there was only one time that you could use it. They were incredibly precious. And for this woman, this flask symbolized not only something of incredible financial value. Think of this in, in the first century, this would have been something like a part of an inheritance. So not only did it have great financial value, but great emotional value. It told a story about her family, where she was from, who she was, and what does she do? Out of love and gratitude, she breaks this jar and she pours it all over Jesus' head. One writer puts it like this, she poured out her future and her security on Jesus' That's a beautiful definition of faith. Faith is pouring out your future, your identity, your security on Jesus. And for her to break this jar is simply to say she is giving him everything. She's holding nothing back. She's giving him her most precious possession you see, in this woman's gift, what we see is a definition of faith, that faith really means transferring all of your trust from anything in this life, whether it be your performance, whether it be your possessions, whether it even be other people, and putting it all on Jesus. That's what faith is. Faith is not looking to yourself. Faith is looking outside of yourself and pouring all of who you are on Jesus and knowing that He came to receive that. Now, the reality of it is, this, this flask is described as incredibly valuable and had, was probably very um, pleasing to smell. It was beautiful. But think of it this way. Faith is you not pouring all of who you are on him that smells good and is attractive and desirable. Faith is you pouring all of the filth, all of the guilt, all of the shame on Jesus. And him willingly taking it. He's not interrupted by that. He's not bothered by that. So if that's what trust is, it's transferring all of your trust to Jesus, then what does it mean? What's the significance here? Look in verses 4 to 8. Here in these verses, we really do have two diametrically opposed responses to this woman's action and display of faith. First, let's look at those who are present and like I said, Mark doesn't detail for us, um, as he often does, that the disciples are there, but I think we are meant to infer and understand that at the, at the very least, the disciples are there. But in verse four, Mark tells us that some said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Here's the first thing I want you to see about this. For these Folks, in this situation with Jesus, this kind of faith is a waste. It seems extravagant. It seems over the top. And there are two important things I want you to see about this. The disciples who are there, they simply did not believe that Jesus was worthy of such extravagance. And why not? Mark tells us in verse five, they say, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And so they scolded this woman. The the word there uh, in Greek is an interesting word where it actually describes the the nostrils flaring in anger. This is more than just scolding. This is like chewing her out, yelling and screaming at her for being so wasteful. All in the name of giving it to the poor. But what is so interesting here is that their indignation and their anger only shows up how much they miss the beauty and the value and the infinite worth of Jesus. See, for this woman, the value of the gift, it signals the value of the person to whom she gives it. And only the woman in this story seems to understand this incomparable worth of Jesus. So, first of all, the, these the disciples and others present they just simply didn't see Jesus as she did, as as beautiful and as worthy as he really is. But not only that, they saw this woman as a religious fanatic. This is someone who overbelieves and in turn overpractices her Christianity. Uh, You can just imagine them indicting her, she's just too committed, she's too devoted, and as a result, she actually fails to do justice to the poor. That's what they're saying. You're taking this Jesus thing just too seriously. The irony, though, is when you think about what a fanatic is, it's actually the disciples and the others present who sound more like a fanatic somebody who is self-righteous, someone who is condescending, someone who thinks they and they alone have the truth, someone who's harsh. Their entire response reveals their hard-heartedness, and her wholehearted devotion simply exposes that, even though it's cloaked, in their words, in an otherwise good concern. For the poor. But then notice in contrast how Jesus reacts to this woman. Jesus in verse 6 says, But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. So at first, the response is that this is a waste. This kind of faith, this kind of. transfer of all of your trust and all your loyalty, that's just kind of, that's a waste. It's too much. It's not, it's not where it should go. And Jesus says, no, no, this is a beautiful thing. Here, Jesus helps us to see that while from the outside, biblical faith will look to many like it is way too radical, way too trusting, way too devoted. Jesus, by contrast, he always nurtures faith wherever it comes from. And let me show you what I mean. If you if you can think back to the end of chapter 12, we looked at, again, the widow in the temple who put her two pennies into the offering box. And Jesus makes the profound statement that Even though all of these rich people put in all of this money, Jesus says she put in more than all of those people together because she just didn't give two pennies. Mark tells us she gave her life. Now what's interesting is both that woman and this woman received the same commendation from Jesus. There's a striking parallel between the two even though in the widow's gift, it was two pennies. And it's totally different than this woman's gift, which was a year's salary. But one commentator helps us to see it and put it like this. He says, in Jesus' sight, an action has value according to the motive and intention. And that is what makes it serviceable in the kingdom of God. Therefore, no gift, not even a mere two pennies, is meaningless and no gift even a year's salary is wasted here Jesus teaches us the significance of this trust of this faith that he looks on the heart that Jesus what he is impressed with is a heart devoted to him in whatever form it takes large or small known or unknown loud or quiet. And then clearly, the woman and the others present, they have a wildly different estimation of Jesus. And so, as we asked at the beginning, what what is it about this woman that gets Jesus' attention? And it's worth asking it perhaps this way. How has the beauty of Jesus broken in to this woman's life? And as a result, what does she see? Which brings us to the eyes of faith. What does true faith see about Jesus? And how does she help us to understand that? Notice here, and again, verses 6 through 9, Jesus is continuing to respond to those present who have rebuked her. And he comes to her defense. And he says that she has done a beautiful thing to me. Verse 8, that she has done what she could She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And then in verse 7, in between there, he says, you always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you could do good for them, but you will not always have me. So the great indictment against this woman is she's not actually taking serious her obligation to care for the poor. But let let me show you something here that this woman sees that no one else in this passage sees. I could put it to you like this. She's the only one in this passage who has given to the poor. Because she understands that Jesus, she sees in Jesus the one who gave up everything for her. She sees in Jesus the truly righteous poor sufferer you you can go and read psalm 41 later. And in fact it describes the betrayal of of the of the person in the psalm by a friend. Parallels where we are exactly right now. And that this woman she saw Jesus as the poor man par excellence. That he was the poor righteous sufferer that he's the one betrayed by his closest friends to die a criminal's death outside the city with no one around. Or to borrow from how Paul in 2 Corinthians describes that Jesus became poor so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, the only way you can really love the poor is if you see Jesus poor for you. And that's what this woman teaches us and everyone else in this passage misses. She sees that in her her gift to him of her most precious possession she can let that go because he let go of everything for her. And so the woman here she is the first person in Mark's gospel to perceive, actually, that the gospel is realized and the gospel is accomplished only in his suffering and him losing everything so that we could have everything. And so she anoints his body, and Jesus says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, it would be easy to run right past that, but it, that, that very phrase points to the kind of death he would die. You see, a criminal hanging on a cross outside the city, when they die, their bodies are not anointed. You don't anoint a criminal's body. You only anoint a person who's died a a relatively normal death, someone who's not being killed for doing something wrong. But here, she anoints his body beforehand. And Jesus commends her for what she's done. No one else in the gospel receives this kind of commendation, that wherever the good news is preached, this story will be proclaimed. That this story, now we have to ask, what is it about this story? Why for Jesus is this so central to understanding him and what faith in him is, that he would say, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told. And the answer to that is very simple. The answer to that is that her story teaches us the key to understanding the gospel. That you simply cannot understand the good news of the kingdom apart from his suffering. Christianity is not a moral self-improvement program. Christianity is an indictment on our rebellious hearts And you cannot outrun it. You cannot outrun it. So desperate are you that nothing short of the eternal Son of God had to take on flesh and suffer in your place to bear the punishment you and I deserve. And she sees that. She sees that there is no good news apart from his suffering. They go hand in hand. And in fact, this is the last time that we will see the word gospel on Jesus' lips in this book. And every time we have seen him do that, it's always in the context of suffering. So what does this woman see? She sees in front of her a beautiful Savior who willingly impoverished himself, did not count himself equal with God, but he gave up all of his rights, all of his honor, all of his privileges in order to be shamed, beaten, spit upon, rejected, forsaken. So that you and I, through faith in him, taking in that good news would know no matter what happens to you or what someone else does to you this side of heaven, you will never, ever be betrayed. So where where do we end with this? I want you to think about this for a moment. How do you get that kind of faith? How, how does what we see illustrated in this woman become true of us? And I think the answer is really rather simple. Um, it, it really comes by making it your daily habit to meditate on the cross of Jesus. Let me ask you, is that a daily habit? Do you know how to do that? If you don't know how to do that, simply begin by reading what we're reading, the story of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. And begin asking yourself, what kind of God would do that for someone like me? And ask God to work in such a way that your heart would be melted by that cross. Now, this story, it ends with Judas going off and um, partnering up with the chief priests. And it's a tragic ending to this beautiful story of this woman And so here we have this contrast between this beautiful Savior and then this very wicked plan, this very evil plan to kill this beautiful Savior. And what I want you to see here is that there is brought together in in this passage something that we're going to see unfold uh, throughout the rest of the book. And it's this, that divine grace will triumph over human evil to accomplish God's saving purposes? How do you know that God's sovereign grace will triumph over the individual um, evils that you and I face? Or even the ones that we commit. Or the ones that we see throughout our world. How do we know that that will one day come to an end, and that God's grace will triumph over all evil, over all sin, over all death. The answer is simply the story of Jesus. It's his cross. And that's where we find both our hope, but also our peace to rest and to trust. So let's ask him to help us to do that together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this story about this woman and how it's sandwiched right but in between some of the darkest and most uh, difficult verses to read, uh, partly because we're implicated in that. We're not all that different when we're honest. There is much about you that we chafe at, just like these religious leaders and and Judas and often see you as a means to our own personal fulfillment rather than a Savior who is beautiful, who is worth everything, and we need your help. So would you please help us by your grace to fix our eyes on Jesus, to meditate on this cross. And we pray that in ways that you alone can, we pray that you would work in us this kind of faith, this kind of trust that we might pour out our future and our security and our identity on Jesus and find in him an all-sufficient savior. For it's in his name that we pray, amen.